Hello, my name is Paul Kearney. I'm Professor of Politics and Public Policy, and this is a series of short podcasts to accompany my series of blog posts, which introduce key public policy concepts and theories in 1,000 words. This one is on rational choice theory, or the economic approaches to politics. And it's worth also listening to the, the podcast on new, new institutionalism. Now, this post or podcast is probably the hardest, hardest sell out of the bunch, partly because um, it's quite a vague proposition. You know, what is rational choice theory beyond the, you know, the application of economics to politics or the, the use of models in deductive reasoning? It also is a hard sell, I think, because it seems like such a wacky enterprise to to people who are uninitiated. You know, so why would you make all of those unrealistic assumptions about human behaviour to analyse policy making in the real world? Okay, so for me, the the general value can be found in you know the so-called "what if" questions. So we've explored in other posts the value of comparing something unrealistic with the real world to help us better understand the real world. And I think that's in that vein you could, you could understand this kind of approach. So, you know, for example, what if people acted in this very simple, simplistic way and it produced these outcomes in a you know, particular model? What does that tell us about uh, decision making in the real world? Now, there are, there are sort of two basic kinds of rational choice, a sort of abstract, unrealistic one, and a less abstract, you know, more realistic one, which focuses on specific kinds of rules or institutions. Now, in the first abstract kind of rational choice theory, we, we produce that what-if question uh, by running with some very simplified assumptions about individual behavior. So for example, they're goal motivated, they're not motivated by habits or norms, and they can act optimally. Now, as a, as a problematic phrase, but it really means they can fulfill their preferences particularly well, based on their unusually high ability to be able to rank their preferences in order, in consistent order, and gather and process information on all of the effects of their choices. So they can make these optimal decisions, fulfill their preferences. And that kind of artificial starting point has produced some, some interesting questions or sort of thought experiments. That probably the most famous is the so-called paradox of voting or paradox of non-voting, in which we wonder why people would bother to vote when they know that their individual vote makes such a minimal difference. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's worth going into that uh, you know, example in some depth. Now, in that case, I think the value is it, it, it prompts us to consider why else people act. And in this case, I think a lot of the explanations come from saying, you know, people do it because um, there's a particular social norm based on citizenship to do it. So, you know, it doesn't actually rule out a focus on norms. It simply starts with this, this this point and then asks you to to consider how norms or other explanations fit in. Then we have the so-called free rider problem, in which we wonder, uh, you know, for example, why would people engage in collective 
group activity, you know, joining an interest group, if they can benefit without engaging, if the interest group will continue anyway, and they don't actually have to do anything without getting, with you know, uh, you know, without losing out there. Um, now that's that was a kind of question prompt, you know, uh, answered by Olson, who focused in particular on this idea of selective incentives. You know, people join groups uh, because they're given these um, sort of club-based, membership-based reasons for doing so. But it's you know, there's a there's a there's a big literature on that question, and you know, some of it suggests you know, uh, you know, lots and lots of interest groups don't actually have members. And that's worth following up. Then the, the free rider problem, which is probably more relevant to us just now, is why would people buy so-called public goods if they can benefit without paying? Now, public goods are defined as, um, as, as holding two properties. One is they're non-excludable, so no one can be excluded from enjoying their benefits. And they're also called non-rival, so they're used by one person does not diminish their value to another. So the classic examples are things like nuclear power and clean air. And in that case, you know, our, our wondering about uh, why people would buy public goods prompts us to consider the role of government. You know, should they step in when markets fail, when people won't buy these things that you might think are necessary? Then you have another kind of thought experiment in which you have scenarios in which we demonstrate that people acting as individuals to satisfy their own preferences might produce an outcome that goes against the combined preferences of that group. That group. So the first example is the so-called prisoner's dilemma. Now there are quite a few variants of this thought experiment. But the, the same basic premise is that two people are caught red-handed and arrested for a particular crime, placed in separate rooms and invited to confess to a major crime. Okay. Now the assumption is that they both did it, or the assumption amongst the police is they both did it, um, and the police can't prove it. So they provide particular payoffs to the accused to try to get them to confess. And this produces uh, a set of, of interesting incentives. So, we've got Jack and Jill. Uh, if Jack confesses and Jill doesn't, then Jack walks free and Jill receives a 10-year jail, jail sentence, or vice versa. If they both confess, they receive a much higher sentence, let's say eight years, than if neither confesses one year. Now, the point of the game is to demonstrate a collective action problem. Although the best outcome for the group as a whole is that neither confess, because both would go to jail for one year, that's a total of two years, the actual outcome is that both will confess, hoping that the other won't do so. And so they both spend eight years in jail, a total of 16. So those kinds of discussions just demonstrate that basic point about the difference between um, fulfilling your individual preferences and, you know, this idea of a kind of collective preference. There are perverse incentives within these scenarios. And there are other scenarios like the, the chicken game, the assurance game and such like, that explore the difference your environment makes. You know, there are different situations in which there are different incentives. 
And in fact, a lot of the institutional rational choice is about asking yourself what happens if you change incentives within this system? Can you produce a, a better outcome built on people trying to satisfy their own preferences? Now, if that seems a little bit abstract, then we have the more pressing uh, policy-relevant example of the tragedy of the commons. Now, in this case, you imagine uh, the, the commons, in this case, is a, is a field, a field or a piece of land shared by a group of farmers. And the, the piece of land can only support so many cattle before becoming uh, useless to everyone, deteriorating so much. So each farmer individually recognises the collective benefit to an overall maximum number of cattle. Now, the tragedy comes from the fact that all farmers recognise this collective interest, but they think to themselves that they can pursue their individual interests by them taking on, let's say, one extra cow, because the marginal cost of overgrazing is very small from this one cow, but the marginal, marginal gain for that individual is very high. So the tragedy describes um, everyone thinking like that. Everyone acting on their own personal interests, um, you know, overpowering this field with their extra cows and producing a, a, a spoiled resource. So there are actually many sort of real-world problems in which, you know, that is an issue. You know, so things about, you know, um, it's in our collective interest not to pollute the air or the or water or to overfish, um, you know, uh, uh, stocks in the sea, but in our individual interests to do a little bit more. And you know, the the tragedy is if we all act like that, you know, we produce this horrendous outcome. And in each case, you know, the kind of dynamite. Uh, suggestion is that even though people recognise this common group interest, uh, they will not act individually to achieve it. Instead, they act according to their own self-interests, and you know, as a group of people, this will produce a, a disastrous outcome. So, what do you do? Then you might think, well, one potential solution is government. You know, because we're looking for some sort of coercion to get people uh, to act in a collective interest rather than in their own narrow self-interest. And that produces three, three types of question that we can think through. So the first is, you know, to what extent should the state replace the market? Now, th this would come up because, you know, state action generally involves a degree of coercion, which, you know, for example, you, you, you uh, take... Uh, taxes from people, and you regulate the behaviour. So, you know, even though we may consider the state to be one solution, we still need to consider how appropriate that level of coercion is, and how it might co compare to alternative solutions based on, you know, simply encouraging more trust within groups, or providing incentives uh, that are not related to the state or some other kind of private measure to ensure cooperation. The second question is, will state action improve these collective outcomes? And there's a classic kind of um, social choice. 
theory which suggests that the state cannot produce any decision-making rule that would make all of its citizens better off. Instead, it produces winners and losers. And a key question is, can you um, produce enough winners that can then compensate losers for their losses? And, you know, that, that really is a political question rather than a technical one. Third big question, what are the unintended consequences to this kind of government action? So if people, if the reason why you introduce government is because people act in their own narrow self-interest, wouldn't that same thing apply to, you know, people working for the government? You know, public servants acting to maximise their own um, interests within government departments? Or, you know, politicians selling favours to interest groups and businesses and, and so on. So the interesting thing there is, when, when, you, when you think through rational choice, it, sometimes it, it seems like a way to justify for role, a role for government. But a lot, if not most of rational choice, actually underpins arguing for a, a minimal role for the state in favour of the market. Now, this is good context for the identification of work by Eleanor Ostrom and her colleagues, who talk about a kind of third option. Now, her work, uh, in part, demonstrates this potential for solutions that are non-market-based, solutions to collective action, based on some combination of trust between people and less impositional means than you know, government institutions to minimise the costs of, of monitoring collective behaviour and enforcing collective agreements. Now, the basic idea is that each individual seeks an, an agreement with another or with a group, and they try to enshrine that agreement within a set of meaningful rules. So you can see there's a direct link there between this kind of discussion and the discussion of institution, institutionalism. Then Ostrom's interest was, you know, can these rules be enforced by a private authority rather than a, straight, uh, a state authority? So the so-called commons would remain within, you know, uh, private or collective ownership, and individual actors would observe each other's behaviour, report rule-breaking to a third party, and, and they pay for that third party and agree to respect its wishes, its ability to oversee these rules. So for Ostrom, there was a theoretical aim there. Can you identify the conditions that have to be met for some groups to organise themselves to solve a collective action problem without state coercion? And then over time, there's this empirical aim, which is to identify concrete examples of this process. You know, can you identify empirically instances in which uh, you know, this, 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 the third way was successful? And this approach has proved to be, you know, one of the most influential within politics and economics, winning Ostrom the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2009, and really establishing the, the direct policy relevance of what we now call the institutional analysis and development framework. So what started off at the start of the podcast as, as something of a hard sell ends up by, the, you know, by this point as one of the most significant contributions to political science and policy analysis. Okay, thank you.